Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the prize-giving ceremony of the School for Dumb Women. We have an exceptional student today by the name of Carolina Donahue, who um, has released her second novel. Congratulations, ah, guys! It is yeah. It's been a wild ride. So I I write novels when I'm not doing this. What? And um, <laughs> I know, I know. How does she fit it all in? <laughs> um, and my second novel, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, has had a bit of a as, as many professions have had. I think in the last few months, bit of a bumpy ride. Yes. <laughs> so the the hardback version was supposed to be out this week, and um, obviously for for various coronavirus reasons, was not able to. So it is out on ebook and in audio format this week. So if you're a Kindle person or you've got an Audible subscription, um, and you just can't wait for the hardback, please just scoot along to those um, platforms and please just help. Help a sister out because yeah. I've been so... Guys, you guys have been listening to me talk about doing this book for so long. I don't know how you <laughs> haven't disowned me. It must be so boring. I think it's because it morphed from, from the very first phase into what it is now. So I'm like, what, is it, what has it ended up like? Yeah, yeah. Because when we were working together, I would like, you know, give you daily updates on um, how hard it is to yeah. write a murder mystery, which turns out very hard. Also, because um, it's called Scenes of a Graphic Nature, I can't help but think it's like me rebelling and buying an Eminem album. Because it used to have that <laughs> explicit content or whatever it was at the front. On the front, Caroline, what's it? Yeah, what's it about? Well, it is about. It is a story about a a young woman who is um, English, but her father is Irish. Who uh, travels back to Ireland for the first time as a young filmmaker and finds out that the sort of storyline about her like family history that her father has been telling her her whole life is completely fictional and also mired in murder. <gasps> but it's not like, what I really try to do with this thing um, is that like, it is a kind, in some ways it's like a traditional like detective story in a way, but also it's very much like a millennial friendship story because she's there with her best pal who she's kind of somewhat in love with and who the best pal is kind of outstripping her professionally and it's like very awkward. So it's full of like the millennial dynamics we we just love to see as well mm. as being kind of a classic detective story. Um, so I'm really hoping people kind of vibe with those two things. Yeah, I'm, ve- I'm very, very, very excited to read it because um, I love your writing, number one. Uh, number two, you're my real friend in real life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number three, I loved uh, Promising Young Women. And number four, I would never usually read a 
like I like a murder mystery, but I don't know why I never pick it up. I would never, I would never pick something from that genre. But it sounds so exciting. Thank you so much. And like, you know what? You're you're kind of right. It's not like the the genre that I was the most drawn to either. But yeah. it's like I, I was kind of surprised at myself for it ending up this way. Yeah. But it's almost like I felt like there's so much going on at the moment in terms of like like people are like really into like murder podcasts and like yeah. murder documentaries. Mm. And it, it isn't like kind of climbing on the back of those things, but it's kind of more a commentary on like why do people feel like they deserve to know everything about how someone died? Like yes. why do you think that's your right? Yes. <laughs> Which is something we've talked about a lot in this podcast. I was yeah. going to say, we did a, we did an episode on true crime. Yeah, I think yeah. the episode is called, is, Why Isn't This a True Crime Podcast? Ah, there you go. Yeah. So you guys, as always, are my muses. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm the one that gets killed, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the one who um, like is seen having sex in the first scene and then is killed shortly afterwards. <laughs> yes, having sex. <laughs> At last! Does that mean I'm the murderer? <laughs> that means you're the murderer, which I think everybody saw coming. Yes, Hannah. The very <laughs> chilled murderer that doesn't even blink. Yeah. Never. <laughs> Hate blinking. So yeah, it's called Scenes of a Graphic Nature. The ebook and audiobook is out now. The um, hardback is coming out in August. And if you're a sentimental garbage listener, there will be episodes discussing it with kind of part-time co-host Ella Riz Bridger as well in July. Yay! So if you wanted to read it now, you'll, there'll be like a lovely discussion about it in July. Oh, Ooh. I'm very excited. Thanks, guys. Hello and welcome to the School for Dumb Women, the podcast that tentatively mooches around the shops to find out more about the things you're too proud to admit you know nothing about. I'm your host woman, 70-minute queue to get slippers at next, Hannah Barrel. Joining me is bag of pre-chopped squash, Alexandra Haddo. It's not that I don't want to chop a squash, Hannah. It's that the muscles in my arms have atrophied. And bookcase you can't pronounce the name of, Carolina Donahue. I don't know if it's Swedish or if the stress of being in Ikea has made me forget how to read, Hannah. This week we're talking about Canada's gold rush, India's silver lunchboxes and Caroline's bronze jokes on shopping in a pandemic. Mm, they're mediocre and they tried really hard to get there. <laughs> Hannah, there's a long line of men outside my flat. It looks like the line goes all the way down to the Tesco Express at the end of the road. Apparently they've come to seek their fortunes? Is that what you call it, Alex? Yes. Of course, I mean full-blown sex. (laughs) Yeah, so in episode 69, uh, you may remember, I talked about the um, 555 phone prefix in... Uh, American film and TV shows, which basically is a fictional area code. And by the way, I've watched The Simpsons. I've been watching The Simpsons since then, and it just keeps coming up. Really? The yeah. 555 thing. Oh, yeah. And like, yeah, and Homer does say the Klondike thing more than once, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just call Klondike 5. Yes. And what, what we discovered quite early into that episode was that you actually didn't want to talk about movies at all. You wanted to talk about the gold rush. <laughs> Which is a very, a very Hannah Varel subject to me. Because I think, yes. I feel like you're one of these people who like, deep down, you know, you're fine with living in modern society. But actually, you would have loved to have been like on a wagon in the Old West, your husband dying of dysentery, six children in the back and just hi the horse into the great unknown so you can make your fortune, you know? Do you know what? It's so funny that you say that because since we recorded that episode, my mum's cousin emailed and was talking about two relatives who went to Klondike during the gold rush. What? Apropos of nothing? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't say anything about Klondike. 
And God knows they don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> they don't listen to the podcast. That's so Believe random. Me. Oh my God. I don't think I'm descended from them. I think it was like a brother, uncle or something. But uh, still, family members in the Klondike. Well, as we've all, we often talk about in this podcast, you, you have a face that belongs to the past. And mm. uh, yeah, I think you should have been one of the early settlers. And somehow yes. managed to do it without, you know, destroying the indigenous people. I'm sure you would have found a way. Well, see, the problem is, the problem is, as you said, I can't remember why, but I think you were saying the other day, and I agree with you, I do look quite sickly. I'm quite a sickly looking person. Um, wow, what a horrible thing for me to say to you. <laughs> <laughs> you said it in a nice way. I can't remember what. Oh, I think I said that I had a good immune system and you were like, because you look quite sickly. Um, <laughs> I, but think I, think, I think you'd abandon your kids. I think you'd have the six kids and then you'd be like, ah, oh, fuck this. And do you reckon I'd either do that or I'd be dead at like 19? childbirth <laughs> or something. Yeah, that, those are the only awful. two options really, aren't they? Yeah. I think I'd continue to defy medical science by beating syphilis. <laughs> oh, totally. I can really see you being like, my name is Alexandra and here are my girls. And then like, there's, a, there's a kick line of syphilitic women who are there to pleasure the men of the Old West. <laughs> But all we really want to do is make them laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and make them sing. <laughs> the unsinkable Alex Brown. That's me. <laughs> so for anyone who didn't listen to that episode, episode 69, uh, the Klondike is in kind of northwest Canada and it's pretty like cold and, you know, mountainous. Um, and there's lots of rivers and there's some like indigenous locals there. And then uh, it basically, yeah, had this big gold rush in the late 1800s Ugh, um, two words that just sound great together do you yeah, know, what I mean? I know is there any more evocative two-word combination than gold rush apart from maybe war crime yeah <laughs> <laughs> which for context was going to be caroline's segment yeah, this week. Say. and then she was like there's nothing funny about war crimes guys, <laughs> guys did you know that there's nothing funny about war crime <laughs> But it's just like the other week, I was like, guys, I'm going to do anthrax. And then was like, oh, there's nothing yeah. funny about anthrax. And I do think that like, because of the, like, the news cycle being what it is, we each feel our responsibility. Like, let's not bum people out over something. They just don't need to be bummed out about this <laughs> oh, week. Absolutely. <laughs> so back to the gold rush, the evocative and pleasant two-word so, combination. So back to the gold rush. I feel like, I feel like I've never like watched a TV show or a film about the gold rush. And I have... I had very little information in my brain about what a gold rush actually involved. Totally. From, I feel like it's Apart like a, from in Legoland. Did you remember going to Legoland and like sifting through gold? And oh, was that a thing? Like a, oh, oh so good. So in Legoland Windsor, they had this thing where you could like sift some gravel and some of it would be gold. And then you had to put it straight back in. <laughs> gravel, the theme of our Corona podcast. That's amazing. If can we just chime in with, um, with this week's gravel watch? Alex, how is the gravel going? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. The garden looks incredible. We've actually abandoned... Do you have the gravel? We don't have the gravel. We're doing fake grass and we hollowed out the bit of the gravel. And it turns out there were slabs underneath that as well. So we're having... <gasps> it, on, so, honestly, is that like guys, having like wood flooring underneath your crap carpet? <laughs> honestly, that's what it's like. And I cannot wait for you guys to come around and see... Uh, like, I mean, come around any time. It's massive. Come and hang out. Ooh, barbecue. Yeah, ah. exactly. My dad trees. brought um, some, some trees around at the weekend. I hung some lights in there. It's an absolute paradise. All right, this this weekend I'm coming over, okay? You can't stop me. Please do. You must. All right, getting into you like a prospector in a gold rush. Yeah. Also, I feel like, <laughs> Hannah, to your point about gold rushes, I feel like maybe in, like, our dad's generation, like the Western generations, there was a lot of it, and that, like, culture tired itself out with gold rush shit, and all we got was, like, 
Toy Story 2 with the prospector who is played by Kelsey Grammer. Yes. Oh, I forgot. Is that, is that who plays it? Yeah. That makes so much sense. Such an evil prospector. Such a good character. And when he could get yeah, out of his box absolutely. the whole time, very good. Yeah. Well, I felt like I didn't really know much about uh, gold rushes. And now that I've looked into this one, I'm like, oh, gold rushes are horrible. Ooh, really? But like juicy horrible rather than like, let's feel bad about war crime horrible, right? I mean, it's not. Yeah, I don't think we're at war crime levels here. But um, <laughs> I don't know. There's just lots of lots of not fun stuff that happened. Basically, I'll, I'll tell you the kind of potted history of the Klondike Gold Rush, which is that in 1896, a group of people, there's an American man called George and his wife, who was like a common law wife, who was actually from an indigenous group. She is called Shortla. She's a seamstress. She took the name Kate. And then there's her brother and her nephew. And they're all kind of like a little gang going around together and doing business together. Not so much Kate, I guess, but, you know, the guys were kind of like in business together, doing bits and pieces. Sure. And um, one day in August 1896, they find gold at this creek. And it's kind of unclear which of the group found it. Was it Kate? Was it the brother? Don't know. But in any case, the American guy, George, claimed the land. Okay, first of all, in my head, when someone discovers gold in their property, what happens is they're like, they're out and they're like paddling in their little stream and then they something catches their eye and then they a look glint, down and yes. there's a glint <laughs> of gold in the stream. So that's the kind of cinema that I'm imagining here. Just like, yeah. oh, we're all having a nice time. Oh no, we found the glimmer and it will destroy our relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the beginning of the end. Yes. And was it? Oh, pretty much. God, I feel like Keanu Reeves is playing this part. Sorry, I, I know I always say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Keanu Reeves is, is the glimmer in the stream. He's, he's the one that's like, oh no, we should all be communists. I shouldn't tell anyone about this, but then someone else finds out about it. And oh, totally. No, I feel, like, I feel like this guy, George Carmack, I think he's a real kind of ham man. A ham man? Oh, okay. Like a gammon. Oh, what do you call it? Gammon, yes. Oh, <laughs> ham man. <laughs> One of those ham men. The ham man. The day the ham man came to town. I prefer that, actually, ham man. I, I do yeah. like ham man, yeah. So they, um, yeah, so this guy, George, kind of claimed the land. It wasn't already his land. I don't really know how that works, like claiming land that's not yours. But anyway, they, they claimed the land and then kind of word got out locally that there was gold in the creek. And within two weeks, bearing in mind this is like a really remote area and kind of not a ton happening, uh, within two weeks, the whole creek was claimed by various local people or people from like neighbouring areas. And then people expanded into other creeks in the area and found gold there. The creek that they found the gold in, which was originally called Rabbit Creek, got, got renamed as Bonanza Creek. Bonanza? Oh, another one up the road was called El Dorado Creek. Now with added capitalism. Yes. Exactly, yeah. And so it kind of turned into a like, okay, right, like, you know, this is all... This is all happening. We're having a little gold rush. But then because the Klondike is kind of quite remote and it's you can only really get there um, using rivers and stuff and it's like North Canada. So it freezes over in like most of winter and like quite a lot of autumn. I think I think the rivers freeze by like October in that area. And it was August when they first found the gold. So over that winter, there weren't a ton of people that could even get there because it's like quite hard to get there. So if, like it, they were still in this kind of limbo period where word hadn't really got out yet. And they were just kind of like digging what they could of the, like frozen ground and kind of 
you know, carrying on their normal lives. Yeah. And then in June of the next year, this is 1897 now, two boats left the area carrying a bunch of people who'd mined gold and got, you know, were rich with gold. Yeah. um, And carrying the gold itself. The boats went to Seattle and San Francisco. Everyone went mental because there was just a ton of gold on board, came out of nowhere, a ton of people with all this gold. And the press was like, there was one headline which was just gold, gold, gold. (laughs) Stacks of yellow metal. (laughs) And I, I don't know, I really picture like tiny little newspaper boys running down the street being like, gold, gold, get your news here about gold. <laughs> get your news here. If there's gold in Canada, women can't vote. The Titanic will never sink. <laughs> We're in the past. Exactly, yeah. And people quit their jobs on the spot. There were 12 police officers that quit their job. The what? mayor of Seattle quit his job. And at the time he was in San Francisco for like a conference or something. He quit his job. And didn't even go back to Seattle before heading to Klondike. Because they were just like, I need to get there now. Like everyone, it's it's such a weird idea that everyone found out at the same time when these boats came in. And then everyone was just like, shit me, I need to get there before, you know, the thousands of other people in this town who are going to come there get there. Like absolute frenzy. Yeah, which makes sense because... And at the time, like, the US was in a bit of a recession and there was some so, kind of crisis within the gold I mean? standard, which I don't know what that is. So, so, like, times were hard. And the idea that you could just go up to Canada and dig some gold out the ground and then be mega rich is, like, oh, it's, so, it's very appealing. It's so appealing. And do you know what? Actually, like, if I can interrupt with, my, with one of Caroline's theories... Um, it's like it's very similar to if you think of like the the last sort of global recession after like the housing market crash and then afterwards there was this whole kind of hyper masculine lingo around going to silicon valley like if you just have the an idea com, and, yes. and put this yeah. Like, bubble yes like the second dot com bubble it's, it's it's very every time this happens or something like it happens it's like this extremely masculine idea of like in, in the klondike uh it's sort of like oh all you need is a shovel and like yeah. a strong back and you can just mm. make your fortune and in our generation it was like all you need is one good idea and like a forceful personality and you can be a mm. millionaire it's like the exact same yeah. thing with slightly different like materials you know yeah it's like all you need is a website it reminds me of like <laughs> those sort of signs that you see stapled to traffic lights and stuff where it's like want to make pound 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 pounds working from home all you yes. need is a computer oh. i mean obviously there was yeah. actually some substance with this but that's exactly as you described that that's what popped into my head <laughs> yeah it's, it's like any kind of pyramid scheme where it's like yeah people who get there first obviously they make money and then they're yeah. just making money off the people who think they can make money now it's like one of those yes, makeup yeah. pyramid schemes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, so obviously everyone's like, well, I will go to Klondike. I will make my fortune. I will dig it out of the ground. I will come back. I will be rich. All my problems will be over. Yeah. So lots of people, yeah, wanted to go there. Obviously then companies that had boats, like steamboats, then started upping their prices enormously. People uh, started yeah. selling like specially designed food and equipment and guidebooks. There was one company that tried to sell a bicycle. I'm not sure how they thought that that would help, but they were like, the Klondike bicycle for getting yourself to Klondike. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. And, no other bikes will work. <laughs> and 100,000 people set off to Klondike to try and make their fortune. This is a town that's like... I was going to say, when... I don't know, a couple dozen people in it, maybe. 
And what year was this? Uh, 1897, this is. So that's the equivalent of, like, millions now. Yeah, because there's, like, people inflation as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because populations are so much bigger That's now. That's so than they true. Were, like... People inflation. We never. We don't talk enough about like a hundred thousand people with more people then, because there was yeah. less people generally. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So a hundred thousand people set off to to go to Klondike to to make their fortune. They they were nicknamed Stampeders because there were so many of them. And obviously, like, these were just, you know, like I said, it was the mayor of Seattle. It was, like, police officers. It was journalists. Like, these people do not know how to, like, travel overland to northwest Canada, where it's, like, a really harsh environment. Like, it can be warm in summer, obviously, but in winter, it, like, you know, the ground freezes over. It's, It's, like, a very rocky area, very mountainous area, as I said. And people were so unprepared that the Canadian government um, had to step in and say, look, if you're traveling to Klondike, you need to bring a year's worth of supplies, like of food, with you so that you don't die along the way. Oh, my. A year? A year's wow. worth of supplies, which which could weigh up to a ton. I, I didn't know really how much a ton was, so I looked it up. <laughs> and it's like a US ton is around 900 kilos or like 141 stone. Jesus. Jesus. And you're supposed to just, your, your life's bad enough that you're going to up sticks and kind of go, you know, on a whim. But you've got a year's worth of supplies. Yeah, and then you have to buy yourself a year's worth of food. Yeah. And also, like, some kind of a cart and a horse or, like, a mules or dogs or oxen or whatever you can to help you carry that. Because obviously you can't carry that yourself. So that's, like, there's a lot of outlay in, in you know, getting yourself to Klondike. I think I would I would have definitely never got there. I obviously wouldn't have gone, but I would have had a hell of a time convincing Gavin not to go. I think <laughs> he would have been so like so seduced by the Klondike propaganda that would have been happening at the time. Like all of his pals heading up there, he'd be like, "Oh, yeah. I'll just I'll just be gone for like a simple five years, and then I'll come back." And can and we'll you be imagine like, the no. FOMO that you would have as well if everyone's like, "Oh, I'm just going to go to Klondike and get rich," and you'd be like. Oh, I think I'm going to stay at home. But like, yeah. oh. oh, I would have. I'm the worst at FOMO, so I'd literally be like, no, definitely not going. And then if everyone was going, I'm I'd be like, definitely not oh, going, guys. Fine. Totally. And then I would, and then I would, then I would um, definitely like die on the roads because I was actually too poor and only brought two weeks worth of supplies and thought I'll wing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's the other thing that, like, as well as you know, possibly not having enough food with you, the conditions were horrible. There were you had to do like an overland unless you were very rich and you could afford to um, go on the boat the whole way. Um, then you basically had to take one of two routes, one of which was known as Dead Horse Trail. Right, because it was so, because it was so rocky and like you know hard to pass. It would literally there's a photo of dead horses just all over the place. Sure. And the other one uh, called the Chilkoot Pass was so steep that the pack animals couldn't get over it. So you'd have to like unpack all your stuff and do like thirty journeys sometimes to get it all over this pass, which was thirty two miles. Like, this was a really hard journey, guys. Yeah. This is not Duke of Edinburgh. This is not Duke of Edinburgh. Wow. That's so, do you know what, what, what I find so interesting about that is like, because like we've got this right at the turn of the century, right? So like it's this 
period where there's so much industrialization going on and all these cities are like growing so fast and like people are like not working it's like less of an agrarian society and people are starting to move towards working in cities Mm. and working indoors so there must have been like they always talk about like around this period there's like a crisis in like masculinity isn't there and like Mm, yeah and so i imagine there's like there's a whole wave of men in this like kind of new middle class who like obviously have enough money to get a horse and a few cans of beans together but not so much money that they're ever going to actually get rich and they're always just going to make like industrialists richer so they're like fuck it I want to be one of these people. I'm going to make my living off the land. I'm going to fucking be a millionaire and it's going to be this great, like, journey, you know? Yeah. You can so see it. Because how, I mean, how valuable is gold that you went through, you'd go through all of this to presumably, I mean, do you have a house at the other end? Do you then just have to go out into the field with your sifting pan? Yeah. How much gold do you think you're going to find, realistically? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened, out of the 100,000 people that I said who headed there, apparently only 30,000 people actually made it to the Klondike and the rest, you know, either turned back because they realised how hard it was or they died from, like, cold starvation. Jesus. Avalanches, apparently, drowning. Like, and Jesus. I imagine there's probably a fair amount of, like, you know, that person's got beans, let's yeah. go and, you know. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, just, like, highwaymen looting each other. Very, like, imagine. Lord of the Flies, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I don't actually know that that happened, but I can't. I can't imagine that it but didn't. One can imagine. Um, so by so by summer of uh, eighteen ninety eight, it was absolutely packed. It took it took uh, such a long journey as well. So it did take some people like a year to get there. Jesus. So summer eighteen ninety eight, a year after those ships sailed into San Francisco and Seattle, the nearest town to where that Rabbit Creek was, Dawson City, was absolutely packed so then of course you've got saloons popping up brothels popping up yeah and lots of like opportunities to make money but a lot of the people who got there you know that's two years after the gold was first found yeah and a lot of people had already claimed all the good land and so a lot of people who did arrive found they had to then become a laborer for someone else who already had the land and they didn't have an opportunity to get their own land that's what i was going to say because surely obviously these ships landed in san landed pulled up in like san francisco and stuff but there was obviously people closer to the Klondike that would get there before these people that had to travel a year. And surely some word spread. And what I'm so interested in as well is like there there must have been a point where some, some bloke Clive, like he's six months into his, his journey, like half of his toes have f- snapped off in the cold. Like he's yeah. eating rats to survive. And like he must know, there must be like this diminishing thing in his head of being like, a bit like, you know, Tracy Beaker thinking her mum's an actress. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, Aww. there's like dreams slowly dying. Yes. But you have to keep feeding your own delusion in order to stay alive. So you kind yeah. of, you both know yeah. it's fake and you also need it to be real at the exact same time. No, completely. Yeah, it's crazy. So, so yeah, then there was this sort of like, you know, massive boom in Dawson City. and uh, People sort of like scrabbling for all this gold. And then in the summer of 1899, the next year, news arrives that there was uh, gold dust in um, some other place in Alaska and everyone left Dawson. Like no. 8,000 people left in one week. For even harsher terrain. And it, 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 you know, at, at its peak, there were like 30,000 people there. And then, Do you know what this is? This is just the left. early stock market. There's a rumour. Yeah. Everyone goes for it. Then it pushes the economy up. Then there's, a, then there's another rumour, you know, somewhere else. And then everyone goes there and just carries yeah. on. Yeah. God, people are so dumb. 
people are dumb. There's this historian who has some like some statistics. He said uh, some thirty or forty thousand, like I said, reached Dawson. Only about half of this number bothered to look for gold. Of these, only four thousand found any gold. Of those four thousand, a few hundred found gold in quantities large enough to call themselves rich. And out of those, only the merest handful managed to keep their wealth. But uh, yeah, and there must have been no shortage of, of like really good scammers as well, being like, oh, I know how you can invest I that bet. gold money so you can find more gold. Just give it to me. I'll show you where the even better gold spot is, you know? Yeah. yeah. I have I have one final like part of the story. So remember I said the first group to find gold, it was like four people, this American guy, his indigenous wife and her um, brother and nephew. Yeah. So they, you know, they did get rich out of the gold that they found. There's lots of information about her for some reason on the Smithsonian Postal Museum website. Um, so she and George um, moved to Seattle in 1898, so the year two years after they first found gold, and were like local celebrities, and at one point tossed coins from their hotel roof to a crowd, like wow. as you do Bills. when you knew very rich. Um, but Kate, because she grew up in like, you know, this like indigenous community, she hated it there in Seattle. She got depressed. She got arrested for drunkenness. <gasps> she was miserable. He was miserable. He sent her and their daughter to live with his sister and he skipped down. He met a brothel owner and married her. Sure. Which you think he's already got a wife. Well, his marriage to Kate uh, was a common law marriage, so it wasn't legally recognized. So she was left with nothing. Kate had nothing. Kate had nothing. Yeah. And she tried to sue for um, divorce, but because it wasn't like, you know, because it was a common law marriage, the court couldn't couldn't recognize it. So she actually went back to uh, the Klondike, went back to her community, which she which she, you know, was born and grew up in. And uh, her husband died a very rich man, apparently, in Vancouver in 1922. And his new wife, the brothel owner, inherited his wealth um, and presumably had a very nice time. And then, um, yeah, Kate, who was the indigenous woman, she lived off a government pension in a cabin that her brother had built for her in Carcross in the Klondike. And then in 19, uh, sort of 18, 19, 20 maybe, she died of Spanish flu. Jesus. Oh, no. Poor Kate. Yeah, and she was 63. I just think that's so sad that, like, she, you know, and, and, like, we don't know who exactly found the first nugget of gold, but there's lots of people who say it was probably her. And then she just got absolutely screwed over by this shitty husband. Oh, um, Taylor's oldest time. And the fact that, like, she was, like, an indigenous woman in the 1890s who actually, like, mounted a court case Exactly, yeah. That could not have been easy. Do you know what I mean? To, like, even find people representing indigenous women then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, like, do do you know anything about, like, what happened to the indigenous people who are already living there? Oh, I actually meant to say, yeah. So when um, the gold rush first started, they moved all of the indigenous people out of town. Yes, it like forcibly removed them to make way for all the prospectors, which is kind of, yeah, like you were saying, Taylor's oldest time. Ugh, yeah. Fucking hell. Oh, God. These people get screwed so goddamn much. It's fucking exhausting, isn't it? I know. And the thing is as well, like, like I said, we don't know exactly who found the first nugget, but it was registered under George, under the American guy. Um, but that might have just been because they thought that authorities wouldn't, um, wouldn't like recognize uh, a sort of indigenous owner. Yeah. I mean, like, who who's the most likely person to know where gold is? The guy who's rocked up from nowhere or the woman who has, like, a 
deep yeah. ancestral knowledge of the land and a deep connection to it. Like, come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the thing, the thing about that story, I, I love that story, Hannah. Um, I mean, it's exciting. It's visual. It's cinematic. It's everything I want from a history <laughs> lesson here on the Dumb Women Pod. But like, I, mo- I think that entire Klondike story is like a potted history of America uh, as a whole. Yeah. Absolutely. Every yeah. story from American history is basically this. It's just like, people want to get rich. Then the people who end up getting rich are the people who are exploiting the poor people who want to get rich. Then yeah. a lot of women get screwed over. Then indigenous people get screwed over. And then the people who are rich to begin with stay richer. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Blech. Fuck them. <laughs> Fuck them all. Drop it in the sea. And apparently my ancestors who went to the Klondike didn't find gold, but they um, uh, made some money out of food and drink. Yeah, well, sure. Of course. Oh, yeah. Well, so, you know. Fine. Someone's got to. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So Alex, you look like you've had a nice lunch and you also might look like that you might have a better segue from my entry into your section. Do you? <laughs> ah, sadly, I do not, Caroline. That's the best we could do today. But uh, what, you, you win some, you lose some, you know. Um, my section uh, this week is on the double wallers. Does anyone know what they are? Well, waller is like salesperson, isn't it? Like a chai waller. Okay, yeah, similar. So a chaiwala is like tea person. It's the person that uh, brings the chai tea around to all the workers. Um, mm. So wala means person or man, I think, or person associated with whatever word comes before it. And in this case, it's dabba, which means box. Ah, very good. Essentially, dabba wallas, it's a system of delivering people in India, mostly Mumbai, um, their lunches at work. So it's a system of where thousands and thousands of delivery drivers transfer a home-cooked meal this is the this is the key so i mean i'm talking very traditionally here because india is still quite traditional in terms of gender roles um your wife or your mother or your girlfriend or whatever will traditionally make your lunch at home and then the dabba wallas you pay like a certain amount a month 
they will pick up your lunch from home and take it into the office in in the centre of this the city because um, millions of people live outside Mumbai and work inside the city and it's mm. a huge, huge commute. And they will deliver it so that your lunch is fresh at 1pm every single day and they make approximately one mistake in every six million deliveries. Blimey. Amazing. I, like, I, I think the, the only thing I know about this whole subject is from that lovely movie called The Lunchbox, which I think is on Netflix. Yeah, I was going to say there's a movie yes. about this. It's about, it's about the double wallers, yeah, and this, this system of... Um, which uh, So this system is so efficient that MIT and Harvard have studied like how they do it because they don't they don't use an app they don't use um like modern technology in terms of, i mean they've got phones and things like that and um but they kind of shun the idea of having an app they're like we've already perfected basically the perfect system mm. so how do they get it so perfect then how what why what's the secret there has to be something right it's quite like a simple system whereby it's essentially a longer system of a supply chain so it's like let's say we were all we all had to pass a beer keg along and it was really really heavy and it had to get to the other end of the field i would pass it to you caroline you would pass it to hannah hannah would pass it to someone else and you know that every time it's got to go to that same place so the guy on the end is always delivering to the same place mm. so it's it's essentially like someone will take it from the you know from the suburbs to the next town and then that guy will pick right. it up and take it into the next sort of port do you know what I mean? Oh, so it's not the same person delivering. It's not like I would pick up the lunch that Alex had made and then bring it to Caroline. Like I would pass it to someone else who would pass it to someone else who would pass yes. it to Caroline. Yeah. Oh. So if we were talking about like, put this in, in the perspectives of London-centric media lovies that we are, if <laughs> if it would be, it would, like if we're talking about like the Jubilee line, it would be like, I would go from like, Canada water to Bermondsey and someone else would go Bermondsey to Southwark and someone else would go Southwark to Waterloo. Like it's got many many people along the same line. Yeah. And then obviously, I mean, I think it's got the like, you know, the person's name because it's their tin, you see. So they're all in tin. Can you imagine if it didn't have their name on it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And be like, okay. (laughs) Um, But they, they're all in Tiffin tins, which you might have seen. It's like a sort of cylindrical silver tin and it's got sort of um, different, different, yeah different layers on each so you've got like your main your rice your dessert your side your naan so my um my friend sash suggested that i study this because we've talked about it before and he is indian and he was talking about how incredible it is that the um these universities have studied them because they've basically got like a more efficient rating than fedex have on deliveries and stuff wow they've earned a six sigma rating which means one error in every six million transactions but they claim that in 120 years of operation, they've erred once in 16 million transactions. So they think they make even less mistakes. Also, this is amazing. One of the um, quotes was, they acknowledged that one mistake took place in 2005 when <laughs> Mumbai was lashed by heavy rains and a Dabawala was unable to deliver. And that's like wow. them being like, fine, I will concede that this one time... <laughs> Yeah, one time I was... And it's not even like you got it wrong. It was that you were kind of stopped from doing it. And it's also like an amazing commitment. So it's quite like socialist and communist. So every Dabawala gets paid exactly the same. And it's it's quite a decent rate for for Indian from from Mumbai. It's quite a a decent, respectable job to have. And they're all like a sort of really from what I was reading anyway. They're like a union. Do you know what I mean? They're extremely supportive of each other. You basically can't try and infiltrate them you can't try and undercut them stuff you know 
It's like a co-op. Every employee is, is technically an entrepreneur and an equal shareholder in the Dabawala Trust. So it's almost oh. like a sort of franchise, I think. This is very communist. I yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah so that everyone re- re- uh, gets the same income irrespective of age, experience, etc. So it's one o'clock every day. They will always aim to deliver for 12 because Mumbai traffic is so bad. And they've also got like, you know, like a record like with the Japanese bullet trains. Like they're basically never, ever, ever late. So basically the um, the first double waller picks it up usually by bicycle from the house of the woman who's cooked it or the person who's cooked it, but usually it's a woman. Um, and then they place it on a train which kind of takes it into and they sort it in the train into different compartments only by a series of symbols on the Ooh. tiffin tins because Ooh. a lot of because a lot of the dabawalas are illiterate or like have limited literacy so oh, it all right. has to be done by symbols and then that's how the supply chain um gets to them and then they know where to unload them etc um, and then they're handed over to another guy on a bike and then oh, oh and it says here on average each dabawala delivers about 40 each lunchtime that's a lot yeah and then and then the empty ones are collected after lunch or the next day and sent back to the houses so that... I'm sorry, they collect... Can't the, can't the person at work just bring it home? Yeah. I don't know, Hannah, but that is what it says. Wow. Caroline, what happens in the film The Lunchbox? Does someone deliver it to the wrong place and then hilarity ensues? Well, yes, The, the Lunchbox does centre on one of these rare mistakes. So it's... um. This, uh, I've seen this for quite a few years ago, this um, middle-aged man who receives a kind of a love note in his lunchbox and it's for the wrong person. It's, it's obviously it's, it's meant for somebody else. Oh, God, they must have been so annoyed. <laughs> I know. I bet the union were like, for God's sake, you're misrepresenting us. Yeah. I know, totally. I actually do think that movie comes with a disclaimer that's like only one mistake is made in every however million or whatever but um it's lovely because it's like this little like um this man is like a single guy who he he like employ obviously he doesn't have a, a wife or a mother and he gets like a a cafe to make his from what i remember to make his um lunch for him and he gets a married man's tiffin instead and he kind of begins mm. this emotional affair with this woman through these love notes oh so does tiffin. he write back you're gonna have to watch it because I saw this quite a few years ago. But yes, I think he does. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna watch it. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Everybody, it's, it's um, really lovely, and I believe the lead actor died recently, so I think people were talking about it again. Um, so yeah, definitely, oh. definitely look into it. So I was talking to my housemates about it earlier today because I told them that I was um, doing this for my section, and they were like, "How dedicated are they to fresh food?" Right? Because you, obviously, <laughs> you're thinking, you know, in this country, we make our quite frankly shite sandwiches <laughs> at home <laughs> and then take mm. them into the office and you know store them in the fridge or whatever for four hours but when you think about it um, if you're if you're cooking fresh indian food which is obviously delicious and well complex for us to make but not time for, consuming the yeah. most delicious food in the whole world and i will never even approach trying to cook it properly no. I will, like i'll always just get like a fucking uncle ben's do you know what I mean? Cause it's like there's no point it will take too long and i will cry yeah and it's always better getting a takeaway from an actual indian restaurant but yes so essentially what uh the reason why they don't make it and then take it in is because obviously the person cooking it at home if they were going to cook it for the time that the person had to leave for work They'd have to get up at like 3am. It'd have to be like an oh airport run. Do you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> That's such a good point, yeah. Yeah. It'd have to be like, well, that was a lovely late night film session. Set my alarm for an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So uh, that is why. And also, because uh, public transport is extremely crowded, I mean, you know, I think trains in India, and I have been to Mumbai and been on a train there, it does make the tube in London seem like a field in New Zealand. You know, it's... (laughs) Um, it's extremely crowded and obviously if everybody is holding their tiffin tin and also bearing in mind you've got to have sort of keep one hand spare to hold that then it's obviously much more efficient to have someone bring it in for you at lunchtime oh, of course that makes complete sense because like, even when somebody has like a bit of an awkward bag on the tube it could ruin like an entire like, third of a carriage yeah mm. <laughs> yeah it's like a domino effect yeah. Someone on the end has got a big backpack, and then that a poor woman at the other I end of the carriage has got her face pressed against the window. <laughs> My God, that is the London version of like, oh, a butterfly flaps its wings and changes the world. <laughs> it's like somebody going on with a fucking camping backpack on the commute. Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's what where coronavirus really started. People smushing around a bag's perimeter. <laughs> it was a typo. It wasn't a bat. It was a bag. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody ate a bag. Somebody ate a bag. God, have you seen men's rock sacks though? They basically are breeding like, petri dishes, basically. And is there an actual company? You were, you were saying that they've been going for 120 years. There's an actual company behind it. It's not something that sort of sprung up organically. Uh, yes, yeah, sort of. You've got to remember. So it started around 1890-ish, um, mm. and that was you. You've got to think that. I know this is going to blow your minds, guys, but Pret wasn't around. <laughs> no. Um, what? So it was actually started, they, they believe, by a, a banker, a Parsi banker called... Now, he's got a very sexy name. Let me try and pronounce this properly. Um, I'll try to spoon. I know. Um, Mahadeo Havaji Bakcha, which Ooh. I think is a sexy name. Um, have a little bit of a twinge there. Yeah, exa- exactly. And he uh, really loved the idea of having... Uh, he wanted a fresh lunch, so he came up with the idea of delivering his lunch to him because he to himself in his in his workplace because he wanted home cooked food in the office. So he hired a man from Pune or Pune. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it to deliver mm-hmm. it to him, and that kind of that was the beginnings of it. And um, you've got to remember, all as always, the British were being a bunch of colonial c words. And uh, and also when when they sort of saw this business starting, they loved the idea of having fresh food every day as well. So they used to uh, they used to order it from people. So then they needed more delivery drivers. Uh, and then but yeah, it was started by by a an Indian banker. And also you got to remember the the office food envy is so real. Oh yeah, it's like you can never get a lunch that's as good as whatever anyone else is having in the office. Yeah, can you imagine the first day that Mahadeo got his wife's home cooked? Um, tikka or like you know paneer salad paneer like can you imagine everyone would be like oh my god that uh, smells amazing like you're a genius yeah and then a star was born <laughs> a star was born just like Judy and I Garland. guess also in India there's lots of different like uh, religions and ethnicities that have different kind of food needs yeah in, yeah know, exactly like yeah Hindus don't eat beef there's lots of vegetarians and lots um, of veggie Jane, yeah if you're Jane you don't eat like onion and garlic and stuff as well so yeah. if you were trying to do an office canteen it would be like complicated yeah exactly there's a lot of um there's a lot of differentiation so I think this is probably the best way and also nothing's as good as home cooking is it really especially when you don't cook it yourself oh yeah that's the perfect thing oh. <laughs> Honestly, no wonder India, no wonder India, like produces so many like doctors and engineers and stuff. It's like everyone's just working on a good meal. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. everyone's had an absolutely banging, lovely lunch. lunch. Yeah. yeah, 
Can you imagine how much more productive you'd be if you had like a beautiful lunch made by someone who loves you every day as opposed to just a fucking limp egg sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> I'd have written five books by <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> oh, this is the fact I wanted to end on. Just if you want to look up uh, something awful, um, in 2005, Richard Branson met the Dabawallas when he was formally announcing uh, Virgin Atlantic's flights to London from the from Mumbai. And there's a very, very cheesy, horrible picture of him with a Tiffin tin sort of emblazoned with the Virgin Atlantic logo. No. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, and, he, and then he delivered the Tiffin tins to his own employees oh, in Virgin out. in Mumbai. Oh, God, uh, himself. That's so annoying. Yeah. Awful. I bet that was the wrong one and then they had to do a whole cover Oh, up. yeah, it would have. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in 2003... Prince Charles was doing like a state visit to uh, India and to Mumbai and he met the Dabawalas because everyone was like, this, this is an amazing system. God, I think the um, Dabawalas are so sick of being everyone's photo op. I know, it, <laughs> it is a bit like that. But this is brilliant. They gave him a 20 minute slot because they couldn't afford to take time off work because they were so bothered about getting all the stuff in on time. Oh my God. Good on him. Yes. I love them. So this They're bit, so good. The prince, the prince was basically like, yeah, so I'm going to meet you guys. And they were like, yeah, 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 cool. Uh, but the thing is, uh, Ranjit needs his curry at once. So I've only got two minutes for you, pal. Uh, see you later. Cool. Thank you for that very educational. This is a great episode so far. I hope I don't tank it. <laughs> There's you always one. There's always one tank of the episode. <laughs> in each episode, we try to include a smart lesson where we learn about how to navigate the world in a smarter way. And today we're talking about shopping. Who's shopping. done some shopping? Just some girls talking about shopping. Shopping. Well, no, Hannah, oh. it's, not, it's not frivolous anymore. It's not just us wasting money and time. We are shopping for the economy now. It's our job. Ah, my apologies. My apologies, Caroline. Yes. So this week, the government has expanded from the one activity you can do outside your home, which is sitting in the park, to two activities where you can now sit in the park and spend money. Yay! Mm. Yes, the shops are open again, and the most patriotic thing you can do is to spend money you don't have on things you don't need. Yes, of course. (laughs) I went for a bookshop and an art shop today and then I had to literally run home because I was like, you don't have a job. <laughs> but while you were in there, did you feel like kissed by an angel? I really did. I was just browsing and this guy went, can I help you? And I was like, no, it's just nice to be here. And he was like, it's nice to have you here. Oh, I know. If that's not propaganda, I don't know what is. Exactly. Totally is. Like my mum um, runs a sweet shop in Cork. If anyone's in Cork City for any reason, it's called Sweetheart. It's on Paul Street. Cute. It's so nice. I've been there. It's got so much good stuff. It's great. How oh, I you? always forget that you've been there. Mm. I've never been to Ireland. Okay, we're doing an Irish road trip soon. We are. Oh yes. Um, and she she is really like saying about how grateful everybody is to just be out again which is quite heartwarming you know yeah and um so i thought i would bring us through the sort of the what where how and why of shopping in this new era Mm, very good so the most important thing the where so weirdly all the shops that you actually want to shop in are still closed so like uh all like the closed shops because it's like unhygienic to like use changing rooms and stuff of course yeah be yeah. flicking but they're open, hangers. aren't they? Like, I know Primark is open and like Zara and stuff. Yeah, most of the ones I see, like, I think it was the smaller ones seem to be closed though. It's weird. Oh. I've seen a lot of closed, closed shops. I don't really get what's going on there. 
And then the big shops, you kind of need a car and also money. Mm. So what we're actually left with at the end of the day is what is a kind of a shop that I like to call a pokey browser. That was a good TV show, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Killian Murphy in Pokey Browsers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just picturing Killian Murphy in like one of those shops, just being like, "Ah, would you look at your candle there? Isn't it nice?" Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll buy this snow globe for my mother. <laughs> it's her birthday soon. Totally. We have a lovely array of silk scarves. <laughs> but yeah, a, a, a pokey browser. It's one of those independent shops that sell birthday cards handmade candles and like shit animal art mm. yeah yes always by and, like, some local artist oh yeah some local artist that the woman who owns the shop knows yes and is and, like and, and is beholden to which is why you get their like felted cat cards you know yeah completely yes the woman's a slave to a network of artist women that seem <laughs> to like have some sort of dirt on her yeah. and she's always like pushing on to you knowledge of these women she's like my my friend um my friend Muriel, now she went to sale and she found <laughs> she found these lovely handmade leather journals and I'm selling them for twenty two ninety nine. And do you know, 5% of the profits go to women in need, so... Yes, and, and the shop is so small and the woman is so intense and you're just like, okay. You're like, well, I'm going to have to do this because I can't physically leave this shop without anything in my hands. Yes, and like, it's important that we support these pokey browser women because they are, they are the cornerstone of the economy. They are. Like, I don't know where these pokey browser women are getting their income from, but they're always the people who, when you go to, um, when you go to like um, bookstore signings or bookstore talks or whatever, they are the women who get there first and are yeah. buying things in hardback. <laughs> the backbone of our economy. I'm sorry, but I've got, she's a pokey browser. She'll sell you stuff, but you don't need it. <laughs> totally so like here's how our economy actually works here's what the guys in parliament won't tell you okay the pokey browser women um buy my books (laughs) yes of course and then the pokey browser women then run shops that sell useless bollocks and (laughs) and so i so me so we're actually in a trade where like mm. I have to keep buying scarves and hand cream off the pokey browser woman so she can afford to keep buying my books. <laughs> yes. It's an economy that works. And that's economics. <laughs> that's the economy. And so we have to support these women um, <laughs> because like I don't really, no one actually has an honest view on what these women's like, you know, economics are. Their hands but... are so moisturized they can barely turn the pages. <laughs> <laughs> What I love about these women as well, it's like there's no like there's no age or race or particular demographic or class for these women because they exist on all spectrums in every country, everywhere. But yeah. w- the way you can you can tell one and they all they sell all kinds of things like she doesn't need to own a, a useless bollocks shop in order to be a pokey browser. Like some pokey browser women are like butchers, but they have this thing where they like they when you ask them what, what, what price something is, they pick it up off the table and they hold it so high in the air. Yes. yes. So I can look underneath it for the price tag. <laughs> they hold it to the sky like they're the monkey from Lion King. <laughs> With their little, like reading glasses on. They're like, that's 12.99 now. Yeah. Yes. Oh, God. 
please write your next book about the pokey browser. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and here is what. Okay, so we've gone we've gone through the where to buy um, and who to buy from, and now mm-hmm. the what to buy. Okay. So what we want to buy is candles, and what's great is the women have candles. They have loads. Yes. They have so many candles. So, candles that look like only one of the each candle was made. Yes, and like in Ireland, they um, all the candles claim to be from some like uh, very rural island that you need to get a ferry to get to. Right. And like the population of that island is like 17 people and yet they all seem to be making candles in their sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so the candles are a good purchase because they generally tend to be under 20 quid and also we're all eating such a weird combination of food right now because like some food places are open and we're getting too excited that we need candles for fart wafting. That is very true. <laughs> very true. Yeah. Never a more wise word was spoken. But if you can, I, I don't know, like if you can sit with your own fart and generally at this point after what three months I feel like every, everyone's tolerance for their their household's farts has probably gone up don't you think? Oh definitely um, although I, I literally bought one of these candles it, it's it, um, the flavour of the candle by the way was um, Atlantic Sea oh, oh. yeah uh, apparently Atlantic Ocean is, is too much of a reach I don't know <laughs> yeah Atlantic, Atlantic Sea, sea. Is, is, a, is a fantastical place yeah <laughs> Where there's no plastic um, waste. Yeah, and it smells like peppermint and lavender, which I'm like, what? Is, what are you huffing, lady? Um, <laughs> and I, I have it like on my desk, just you know, to light when I feel a bit stressed out or whatever. And I came back from my walk earlier on, and the candle was now on Gavin's desk. And I was like, oh, were you, were you enjoying some candle? And he was like, yes. I'll be honest with you, I did a fart so bad, I needed it to go away. <laughs> oh, that's cute. And that's what the pokey browsers are for. Yes. And also for statement earrings that fall apart after two wears mm. or that you lose the back of and have like really specific backs that you can't just replace from other yes. earrings. Yes. Yes. Oh like the gosh. enormous kind of dinner plate back. Yes. So yes. annoying. Or the long the plasticky cone back. Yes. Yes. Kind of also, they always have an abundance of like weird porcelain piggy banks. Yes. Oh, and ring holders. Who's ever needed a ring holder? Oh yeah. my god, so many like jewelry trees. Yeah. 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 Love it. There's a lot. There's a lot of silver, sort of old school silver. Looked like it was made on a ship a hundred years ago. <laughs> sort of household ornaments. Yes, and also like amber jewelry that are like beautiful amber in the most disgusting silver settings. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's the stuff that you used to wear when you were about 14, 15 and you started reading Spirit and Destiny magazine and you thought you were a witch. Oh yeah, that phase as you know for me has never lifted. Of course. In <laughs> fact, I need to get my cards read soon. Yes, please do. I'll come around. So the the, the difficulty with all of this is um so we've got the, the where, the what, but the how is difficult because we have to make the economy good again so we can get a job, but also lots of us have lost our jobs so we have no money to make the economy good again. Mm. Yes. Um, so for that, we need to just take a wealthy friend into the Pokey Browser. We like gift Pokey Browser woman, our wealthy friends. And then we just lead her around the shop going like, you should get that treat yourself because wealthy people love to be told they need to treat themselves more. Mm, Yes. You've been working too hard. So hard. You know, I mean, we're in a pandemic. You should, you should buy that candle. Totally. Get that pandle, pandemic candle. You didn't go on holiday to Sicily, so, uh, you know, exactly. spend £500 yes. here. Exactly. We need to keep moving this money yeah. around. Think about how much you've saved. Oh, my God. Think about how much you've saved. Is well, I've, It's like, 
it's one of those things that, like, Alex, remember when you said at the beginning of this, you were like, um, it is what it is. It's because become one yeah. of those <laughs> statements of the pandemic. Those automatic things you say without even thinking. Now yeah. it's like, uh, oh, think of what you've saved. Not just yeah, exactly. <laughs> think of what you would have spent. Yeah. What you would have spent. Yeah, we all like thinking about the par- like parallel universe where we're all spending like £300 a day. Yeah, Hundy P. Although I have realised how much I did spend on eating out and drinking. I mean, it is absolutely creepy, isn't it? Because I should be destitute by now, but I'm not. So I'm like, God, how much was I absolutely spunking? Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. I, in the Barclays app, there's a little bar chart for how much I've spent over the last sort of, um, you know, six months. And yeah. it looks it looks like a, like a, a graph showing like the economic depression after 1929. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> Were you in a coma? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's like it's relieving, but it's also weirdly shameful. It's very yeah. very complex set of emotions. Um, and lastly, if you do go into one of the big chains and you're not gonna like spend money on the pokey browser woman, you have to make the most out of Waterstones by using their bin. Oh. oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I used to hate this when I worked in retail. People would just come up to you and be like, "Do you have a bin?" And they would like put their like McDonald's like fucking drink thing into your hand. <laughs> I've done and- that so much awful we hate it um and the thing about that is that like apparently i read this today it absolutely scared the shit out of me which is that um because there's such an um an upspike in like domestic waste because we're all spending so much more time at home we're all eating more we're all throwing more things out there's been a real uptick in rats and mice yeah, we had mice. Oh, it was no, horrible. Not them. Yeah, so we need to get rid of that by giving our waste to Waterstones. That's fine. Yes. Uh, or breaking up with people in it, like you always do. Yes, my favorite thing to do. Yes, that's why Gavin <laughs> never goes shopping with me anymore. Just he knows that's where he'll meet. <laughs> that's why he on. hasn't read a book in six years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he hasn't read a book in six years, including both of mine. So no, no, really? no seriously, he hasn't finished either of them. I don't think he ever will. <laughs> Gavin James Day. That's appalling. Do you know what? It's fine. And actually better because... Because in the end, just... the character called Gavin dies a horrific death in bed. Exactly. <laughs> and all I really need is good D from that man anyway. And that is what he provides. That doesn't have literacy attached to it all. Exactly. Well, that's all for this week. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can hear more by searching School for Dumb Women on your favourite podcast app and following us on the usual social media platforms at Dumb Women Pod. You can also hear us on Zoe Radio every other Thursday at 6pm on the Culture Channel. Thank you to Gavin Day for our artwork, Harry Harris for our jingles and Soho Radio Studios. Stay safe and stay dumb. And get a curry. Shop at your local Pokey Browser. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.